0: Welcome back to Caldi's Corner. Today, we're reading Reading 8 from World War Z by Max Brooks. If you're following along in the hard copy, this is on page 130. Udapar, Lake Palace, Lake Pachola, Rajasthan, India. Completely covering its foundation of Jagniwas Island, this idyllic, almost fairy tale structure was once the Maharaja's residence, then a luxury hotel Than a haven to several hundred refugees, until an outbreak of cholera killed them all. Under the direction of project manager Sardar Khan, the hotel, like the lake and surrounding city, is finally beginning to return to life. During his recollections, Mr. Khan sounds less like a battle-hardened, highly educated civilian engineer, and more like a young, frightened lance corporal who once found himself on a chaotic mountain road. I remember the monkeys, hundreds of them climbing and skittering among the vehicles, even over the tops of people's heads. I'd watched them as far back as Chanagar, leaping from roofs and balconies as the living dead filled the streets. I remembered them scattering, chattering, scrambling straight up telephone poles to escape the zombies grasping arms. Some didn't even wait to be attacked. They knew, and now they were here on this narrow, twisting Himalayan go track. They called it a road, but even in peacetime, it had been a notorious death trap. Thousands of refugees were streaming past or climbing over the stalled and abandoned vehicles. People were still trying to struggle with suitcases, boxes. One man was stubbornly holding onto the monitor for a desktop PC. A monkey landed on his head, trying to use it as a stepping stone. But the man was too close to the edge, and the two of them went tumbling over the side. It looked like, every second, somebody would lose their footing. There were just too many people. The road didn't even have a guardrail. I saw a whole bus go over. I don't even know how. It wasn't even moving. Passengers were climbing out of the windows because the doors of the bus had been jammed by foot traffic. One woman was halfway out the window when the bus tipped over. Something was in her arms. Something clutched tightly to her. I tell myself it wasn't moving or crying, that it was a bundle of clothes. No one within arm's reach tried to help her. No one even looked. They just kept streaming by. Sometimes, when I dream about that moment, I can't tell the difference between them and the monkeys. It wasn't supposed to be there, it wasn't even a combat engineer. I was with the BRO. My job was to build roads, not blow them up. I'd just been wandering through the assembly area at Shimla, trying to find what remained of my unit, when this engineer, Sergeant Mukaji grabbed me by the arm and said, You, soldier, you know how to drive? I think I standard something to the affirmative, and suddenly he was shoving me into the driver's side of a jeep while he jumped in next to me with some kind of radio-like device on his lap. Get back to the pass. Go, go. I took off down the road, screeching and skidding and trying desperately to explain that I was actually a steamroller driver and not even fully qualified at that. Mukaji didn't hear me. He was too f- busy fiddling with the device on his lap. The charges already set, he explained. All we have to do is wait for the order. What charges? I asked. What order? To blow the past U.S. head, he yelled, motioning to what I right now recognized as a detonator on his lap. How the hell else are we supposed to stop them? I knew... Vaguely, that our retreat into the Himalayas had something to do with some kind of master plan, and that part of that meant closing all the mountain passes to the living dead. I never dreamed, however, that I would be such a vital participant. For the sake of civil conversation, I will not repeat my profane reaction to Mukaji, Mukherjee, nor Mukaji's equally profane reaction when we arrived at the pass and found it all still full of refugees. It's supposed to be clear, he shouted. No more refugees! We noticed a soldier from the, restri- we noticed a soldier from the Rashtia rifles the outfit that was supposed to be securing the road's mountain entrance, come running past the jeep. Mukaji jumped out and grabbed the man. What the hell is this? he asked. He was a big man, tough and angry, just as scared. Do you want to shoot your grandmother? Go ahead. He shoved the sergeant aside and kept going. Mukaji keyed his radio and reported that the road was still highly active. A voice came back to him. A high-pitched, frantic, younger voice of an officer screaming that his orders were to blow the road no matter how many people were on it. Mukoji responded angrily that we had to wait till it was clear. If we blew it now, not only would we be sending dozens of people hurdling to their deaths, but we would be trapping thousands on the other side. The voice shot back that the road would never be clear, that the only thing behind those people was a raging swarm of God knows how many million zombies. Mukoji, asked. Mukoji answered that he would blow it when the zombies got here, and not a second before. He wasn't about to commit murder, no matter what some peace and lieutenant. But then Mukoji stopped mid-sentence and looked at something over my head. I whipped around and suddenly found myself staring into the face of General Raj Singh. I don't know where he came from, why he was there. To this day, no one believes me. Not that he wasn't there, but that I was. I was inches away from him, the tiger of Delhi. I've heard that people tend to view those that they respect as appearing physically taller than they actually are. In my mind, he appears as a virtual giant, even with his torn uniform, his bloody turban and the patch on his right eye and the bandage on his nose. One of his men had smashed him in the face to get him on the last chopper at Gandhi Park. General Raj Singh. Khan takes a deep breath, his chest filling with pride. Gentlemen, he began. He called us gentlemen and explained very carefully that the road had to be destroyed immediately. The Air Force or what was left of it had its own orders concerning the closure of all mountain passes. At this moment, a single Shamshir fighter-bomber was already on the station above our position. If we found ourselves unable or unwilling to accomplish our mission, then the jaguar's pilot was ordered to execute Shiva's wrath. Do you know what that means? Raj Singh asked. Maybe he thought I was too young to understand, or maybe he must have guessed, somehow, that I was Muslim. But even if I'd absolutely known nothing about the Hindu deity of destruction, everyone in uniform had heard rumors about the secret code name for the use of thermonuclear weapons. Wouldn't that have destroyed the pass? Yes, and half the mountain as well. Instead of a narrow choke point hemmed off by sheer cliff walls, you would have had little more than a massive gently sloping ramp. The whole point of destroying these roads was to create a barrier inaccessible to the living dead, and now some ignorant Air Force General with an atomic erection was going to give them the perfect entrance right into the safe zone. Mukaji gulped, not sure of what to do, until the Tiger held out his hand for the detonator. Ever the hero. He was now willing to accept the burden of mass murderer. The sergeant handed it over, close to tears. General Raj Singh thanked him, thanked us both. We spurred our prayer, then pressed his thumbs down on the firing buttons. Nothing happened. He tried again. No response. He checked the batteries, all the connections, and tried a third time. Nothing. The problem wasn't a detonator. Something had gone wrong with the charges that were buried half a kilometer down the road, sat in the middle of the refugees. This is the end, I thought. We are going to die. All I could think about was getting out of there, far enough away to maybe avoid the nuclear blast. I still feel guilty about those thoughts. Caring only for myself in a moment like that. Thank God for General Raj Singh. He reacted (laughs) exactly how you would expect a living legend to react. He ordered us to get out of there, save ourselves and get to Shimla. Then turned and ran right into the crowd. Mukhaji and I looked at each other. Without much hesitation, I am happy to say and took off after him. Now we wanted to be heroes too, to protect our general and shield him from the crowd. What a joke. We never even saw him once the masses enveloped us like a raging river. I was pushed and shoved in from all directions. I don't know when I was punched in the eye. I shouted that I needed to get past and that this was army business. No one listened. I fired several shots in the air. No one noticed. I considered actually firing into the crowd. I was becoming as desperate as them. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Mukherjee go tumbling over the side with another man still fighting for his rifle. I turned to tell General Raj Singh, but couldn't find him in the crowd. I called his name, tried to spot him above the other heads. I climbed onto the roof of a microbus, trying to get my bearings. Then the wind came up. It brought the stink and moan whipping through the valley. In front of me, about a half kilometer ahead, the crowd began running. In front of me, about a half kilometre ahead, the crowd began running. I strained my eyes, squinted. The dead were coming, slow and deliberate, just as tightly packed as the refugees they were devouring. The microbus shook, and I fell. First, I was floating on a sea of human bodies. Then suddenly, I was beneath them, shoes and bare feet trampling on my flesh. I felt my ribs crack. I coughed and tasted blood. I pulled myself under the microbus. My body was aching, burning. I couldn't speak. I could barely see. I heard the sound of the approaching zombies. I guessed that they couldn't be more than 200 meters away. I swore I wouldn't die like the others. All those victims thrown to pieces, that cow I saw struggling and bleeding on the banks of the Satluj River in Rubnaga. I fumbled for my sidearm. My hand wouldn't work. I cursed and cried. I thought I'd be religious at that point, but i was just so scared and angry i started beating my head against the underside of the van i thought if i hit it hard enough i could bash in my own skull suddenly there was a deafening roar and the ground rose up underneath me a wave of screams and moans mixed with this powerful blast of pressurized dust my face slammed into the machinery above knocking me out cold the first thing i remember when i came to was a very faint sound at first i thought it was water it sounded like a fast drip tap Tap, tap like that. The tap became clearer, and I suddenly became aware of two other sounds the crackle of my radio, how that wasn't smashed I'll never know, and the ever present howling of the living dead. I crawled out from under the microbus. At least my legs were still working well enough to stand. I realized that I was alone. No refugees, no general rush thing. I was standing along a collection of discarded personal belongings in the middle of a deserted mountain path. In front of me was a charred cliff wall. Beyond it was the other side of the severed road. That's where the moan was coming from. The living dead were still coming for me. With eyes front and arms outstretched, they were falling in droves off the shattered edge. That was the tapping sound, their bodies smashing on the valley floor far below. The tiger must have set off the demolition charges by hand. I guessed he must have reached them about the same time as the living dead. I hope they didn't get their teeth in him first. I hope he's pleased with his statue that now stands over a modern four-lane mountain freeway. I wasn't thinking about his sacrifice at that moment. I wasn't even sure if any of this was real. Staring silently at this undead waterfall, listening to my radio report from the other units. Vikashnagar. Secure. Bilaspur, Secure. Jawala Muki, Secure. All passes report secure. Over. Am I dreaming? I thought. Am I insane? The monkey didn't help matters any. He was sitting on top of the microbus just watching the undead plunge to their end. His face appeared so serene, so intelligent, as if he understood the situation. I almost wanted him to turn to me and say, This is the turning point of the war. We finally stopped them. We are finally safe. But instead, his little penis popped out and he peed on my face. Homefront USA, down New Mexico. Arthur Sinclair Jr. is the picture of an old war patrician, tall, lean, with with close, cropped white hair and affected Harvard accent, he speaks into the ether, rarely making eye contact or pausing for questions. During the war, Mr. Sinclair was a director of the U.S. government's newly formed DESTRESS, or Department of Strategic Resources. I don't know who first thought of the acronym DESTRESS, or if they consciously knew how much it sounded like DISTRESS, but it certainly could have not been more appropriate. Establishing a defensive line at the Rocky Mountains might have created a theoretical safe zone. But in reality, that zone consisted mainly of rebel and refugees. There was starvation, disease, homelessness in the millions, industry was in shambles, transportation and trade had evaporated, and all of this was compounded by the living dead both assaulting the Rocky Line and festering within our safe zone. We had to get our people on their feet again, clothed, fed, housed, and back to work. Otherwise, this supposed safe zone was only forestalling the inevitable. That is why distress was created. And, as you can imagine, I had to do a lot of on-the-job training. Those first months, I can't tell you how much information I had to cram into this withered old cortex. The briefings, the inspection tours. And when I did sleep, it was with a book under my pillow. Each night, a new one. From Henry J. Kaiser to Pho Nguyen Gyap. I needed every idea. Every, out, every word, every ounce of knowledge and wisdom, to help me fuse a fractured landscape into the modern American war machine. If my father had been alive, he probably would have laughed at my frustration. He'd been a staunch New Dealer, working closely with FDR as a comptroller of New York State. He'd used methods that were almost Marxist in nature, the kind of collectivization that would make Ayn Rand leap from her grave and join the ranks of the living dead. I'd always rejected the lessons he'd tried to impart, running as far away as Wall Street to shut them out. Now, I was racking my brains trying to remember them. One thing those New Dealers did better than any generation in American history was find and harvest the right tools and talent. Tools and talent? The term my son heard once in a movie. I found it described our rec- reconstruction efforts rather well. Talent describes a potential workforce, its level of skilled labor and how that labor could be utilized effectively. To be perfectly candid, our supply of talent was at a critical low. Ours was a post-industrial or service based economy so complex and highly specialized that each individual could only function within the confines of its narrow, compartmentalized structure. You should have seen some of the careers listed on our first employment census. Everyone was some version of an executive, a representative, an analyst, or a consultant. All perfectly suited to the pre-war world, but all totally inadequate for the present crisis. We needed carpenters, masons, machinists, gunsmiths. We had those people, to be sure, but not nearly as many as were necessary. The first labor survey that stated clearly that over 65% of the present civilian workforce were classified F6, possessing no valued vocation, we required a massive job retraining program. In short, we needed to get a lot of white collars dirty. It was slow going. Air traffic was non-existent. Roads and whale lines were in shambles and fuel, good lord. You couldn't find a tank of gas between Blaine, Washington, and Imperial Beach, California. Add to this the fact that pre-war America not only got a commuter-based infrastructure, but that such a method also allowed for severe levels of economic segregation. You would have entire suburban neighborhoods of upper-middle-class professionals, none of whom had possessed even the basic know-how to replace a cracked window. Those with that knowledge lived in their own blue-collar ghettos, an hour away in pre-war auto traffic, which translated to at least a full day on foot. Make no mistake, bipedal locomotion was how most people traveled in the beginning. Solving this problem... no, challenge there are no problems, was the refugee camps. There were hundreds of them. Some parking lots small, some spreading for miles, scattered across the mountains and coast. all requiring government assistance, all acute drains and rapidly diminishing resources. At the top of my list, before I tackled any other challenges, these camps had to be emptied. Anyone F6, but physically able, became unskilled labor, clearing rubble, harvesting crops, digging graves. A lot of graves needed to be dug. Anyone A1, those with war-appropriate skills, became part of our CSSP, or Community Self-Sufficiency Program. A mixed group of instructors would be tasked with infusing these sedentary, over-educated, desk-bound cubicle mice with the knowledge necessary to make it on their own. It was an instant success. Within three months, you saw Mark drop-in requests for government aid. I can't stress how vital this was to recovery and victory. It allowed us to transition from a zero-sum, survival-based economy into a full-blown war production. This was the National Reeducation Act, the organic outgrowth of the CSSP. I'd say it was the largest jobs training program since the Second World War and easily the most radical in our history. You've mentioned on occasion the problems faced by the NRA. I was getting to that. The president gave me the kind of power I needed to meet any physical or logistical challenge. Unfortunately, what neither he nor anyone on earth could give me was the power to change the way people thought. As I explained, America is a segregated workforce. And in many cases, that segregation contained a cultural element. A great many of our instructors were first-generation immigrants. These were the people who knew how to take care of themselves, how to survive on very little and work with what they had, These were the people who tended small gardens in their backyards, who repaired their own homes, who kept their appliances running for as long as mechanically possible. It was crucial that these people teach the rest of us to break from our comfortable, disposable consumer lifestyle, even though their labor had allowed us to maintain that lifestyle in the first place. Yes, there was racism. But there was also classism. You're a high-powered corporate attorney. You've spent most of your life reviewing contracts, brokering deals, talking on the phone. That's what you're good at. That's what made you rich and what allowed you to hire a plumber to fix your toilet, so which allowed you to keep talking on the phone. The more work you do, the more money you make. The more peons you hire to free you up to make more money. That's the way the world works. But one day, it doesn't. No one needs a contract reviewed or a deal brokered. What it does need is toilets fixed. And suddenly that peon is your teacher, maybe even your boss. For some, this was scarier than the living dead. Once, on a fact-finding tour through L.A., I sat in the back of a re-education lecture. The trainees had all held lofty positions in the entertainment industry, a melange of agents, managers, creative executives, whatever the hell that means. I can understand their resistance, their arrogance. Before the war, entertainment had been the most valued export of the United States. Now they're being trained as custodians for a munitions plant in Bakersfield, California. One woman, a casting director, exploded. How dare they degrade her like this? She had an MFA in conceptual theater, and she'd cast the top three grossing sitcoms the last five years. She made more in a week than her instructor could ever dream of in several lifetimes. She kept addressing that instructor by her first name, Magda. She kept saying, Magda, enough already. Magna, please. At first, I thought this woman was just being rude, degrading the instructor by refusing to use her title. I found out later that Miss Magda Atanova used to be this woman's cleaning lady. Yes. It was very hard for some, but a lot of them later admitted that they got more emotional satisfaction from their new jobs than anything closely resembling their old ones. I met one gentleman on a coastal ferry from Portland to Seattle. He'd worked in the licensing department for an advertising agency, specifically in charge of procuring the rights to classics rock songs for television commercials. Now, he was a chimney sweep. "'Given the most homes in Seattle had lost their central heat "'and the winters were now longer and colder, he was seldom idle. "'Now, I help keep my neighbors warm,' he said proudly. "'I know it sounds a little too Norman Walkville, "'but I hear stories like that all the time. "'You see those shoes? I made them. "'That sweater? That's my sheep's wool. "'Like the corn? My garden.' That was the upshot of a more localized system. and gave people the opportunity to see the fruits of their labor. It gave them a sense of individual pride to know that they were making a clear, concrete contribution to victory. and gave me a wonderful feeling that I was part of it. I needed that feeling. It kept me sane for the other part of my job. So much for talent, tools, are the weapons of war, and the industrial and logistical means by which those weapons are constructed. He swivels in his chair, motioning to a picture above his desk. I lean closer and see it's not a picture, but a framed label. Ingredients. Molasses from the United States, anise from Spain, licorice from France, vanilla bourbon from Madagascar, cinnamon from Sri Lanka, cloves from Indonesia, cloves from Indonesia, wintergreen from China, pimento berry oil from Jamaica, balsam oil from Peru. And that's just for a bottle of peacetime root beer. We're not even talking about something like a desktop PC or a nuclear powered aircraft carrier. Ask anyone how the Allies won the Second War, those with very little knowledge might answer that it was our numbers or generalship. Those without any knowledge might point to techno-marvels, like radar or the atom bomb. He scowls. Anyone with the most rudimentary understanding of that conflict will give you three real reasons. First, the ability to manufacture more material, more bullets, beans, and bandages than the enemy. Second, the natural resources available to manufacture that material. And third, the logistical means not only to transport those resources to the factories, but also to transport the finished products out to the front lines. The Allies had the resources, industry, and logistics of an entire planet. The Axis, on the other hand, had to depend on what scant assets they could scrape up within their borders. This time, we were the Axis. The living dead controlled most of the world's landmass, while American war production depended on what could be harvested within the limits of the western states specifically. Forget raw materials from safe zones overseas. Our merchant fleet was crammed to the decks with refugees, while few shortages had dry docked most of our navy. We had some advantages. California's agricultural base could at least erase the problem of starvation if it could be restructured. The citrus growers didn't go quietly, neither did the ranchers. The beef barons, who controlled so much prime potential farmland, were the worst. Did you ever hear of Don Hill? Ever see the movie Roy Elliott did on him? It was when the infestation hit the San Joaquin Valley. The dead swarming over his fences, attacking his cattle, tearing them apart like African driver ants. And there he was, in the middle of all of it, shooting and hollering like Gregory Peck in The Duel of the Sun. I dealt with him openly and honestly. As with everyone else, I gave him the choice. I reminded him that winter was coming, and there were still a lot of very hungry people out there. I warned him that when the hordes of starving refugees showed up to finish what the living dead started, he'd have no government production whatsoever. Hill was a brave, stubborn bastard, but he wasn't an idiot. He agreed to surrender his land and heard only on the condition that his and everyone else's breeding stock remained untouched. We shook on that. Tender juicy steaks. Can you think of a better icon of our pre-war artificial standard of living? And yet, it was that standard that ended up being our second great advantage. The only way to supplement our resource base was recycling. This was nothing new. The Israelis had started when they sealed their borders and since then, each nation had adopted it to one degree or another. None of their stockpiles, however, could even compare to what we had at our disposal. Think about what life was like in the pre-war America. Even those considered middle class enjoyed or took for granted a level of material comfort unheard of by any other nation at any other time in human history. The clothing, the kitchenware, the electronics, the automobiles, just in the Los Angeles Basin alone, outnumbered the pre-war population by three to one. The cars poured in by the millions. Every house, every neighborhood. We had an entire industry of over a 100,000 employees working three shifts seven days a week, collecting, cataloging, disassembling, storing and shipping parts and pieces to factories all over the coast. It was a little trouble, like with the cattle ranchers, people not wanting to turn over their Hummers, or their vintage Italian midlife crisis mobiles. Funny. No gas to run them, but they still hung on to them anyway. It didn't bother me too much. They were a pleasure to deal with compared to the military establishment. Of all my adversaries, easily the most tenacious were the ones in uniform. I never had direct control over any of their R&D. They were free to greenlight whatever they wanted but given that almost all their programs were farmed out to civilian contractors, and that those contractors depended on resources controlled by de-stress, I had de facto control. You cannot mothball our stealth bombers, they would yell. Who the blank do you think you are to cancel our production of tanks? At first I tried to reason with them. The M1 Abrams has a jet engine. Where are you going to find that kind of fuel? And why do you need a stealth aircraft against an enemy that doesn't have radar? I tried to make them see that Given what we had to work with, as opposed to what we are facing, we simply had to get the largest return on our investment, or in their language, the most bang for our buck. They were insufferable, with all their all-hours phone calls, or just showing at my office, unannounced. I guess I can't really blame them, not after how we treated them after the last brushfire war, and certainly not after almost having their asses handed to them at Yonkers. They were teetering on the edge of almost total collapse, and a lot of them just needed somewhere to vent. He grins confidently. I started my career trading on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, so I can yell as hard and as long as any professional drill sergeant. After each meeting, I'd expect the call, the one I'd been dreading and hoping for. Mr Sinclair, this is the president. I just want to thank you for your service and will no longer be requiring. (laughs) It never came. I guess as no one else wanted the job. His smile fades. Not saying I didn't make mistakes. I know I was too anal about the Air Force's decor. I didn't understand their safety protocols or what dirigibles could really accomplish in undead warfare. All I knew was that with our negligible helium supply, the only cost-effective lift gas was hydrogen. In no way was I going to waste lives and resources on a fleet of modern-day Hindenburgs. I also had to be persuaded by the president, no less, to reopen the experimental cold fusion project at Livermore. He argued that even though a breakthrough was at best still decades away, Quote, Planning for the future lets our people know there will be one. I was too conservative with some projects, and with others I was far too liberal. Project Yellow Jacket. I still kick myself when I think about that one. These Silicon Valley eggheads, all of them geniuses in their own field, convinced me they had a wonder weapon that could win the war, theoretically, within 48 hours of deployment. They could build micro-missiles, millions of them, about the size of a 22 rim fire bullet that could be scattered from transport aircraft, then guided by satellites to the brain of every zombie in North America. Sounds amazing, right? It did to me. He grumbles to himself. Now I think of what we poured down that hole, what we could have produced instead. No point in dwelling on it now. I could have gone head-to-head against the military for the duration of the war, but I'm grateful, in the end, that I didn't have to. When Travis DeBrogia became chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he not only invented the resource-to-kill ratio, but developed a comprehensive strategy to employ it. I always listened to him when he told me a certain weapon system was vital. I trusted his opinion in matters like the new battle dress uniform or the standard infantry rifle. What was so amazing to see was how the culture of RKR began to take hold among the rank and file, you hear soldiers talking on the street and bars on the train. Why have X one for the same price? You could have ten Ys, which could kill a hundred times as many G- Zs. Soldiers even began coming up with their ideas on their own, inventing more cost-effective tools that we c- than we could have envisioned. I think they enjoyed it, improvising, adapting, outthinking us bureaucrats. The Marines surprised me the most. I'd always bought into the myth of the stupid jarhead, the knuckle-dragging, lock-jawed, testosterone-driven Neanderthal. I never knew that because the Corps always has to procure its assets through the Navy, and because the admirals are never going to get too fired up about land warfare, that improvisation has had to be one of their most treasured virtues. Sinclair points above my head to the opposite wall. On it hangs a heavy steel rod ending in what looks like a fusion of shovel and double-bladed battle axe. Its official designation is a standard infantry entrenchment tool. Although to most, It is known as either the lobotomizer or simply the Lobo. Leathernecks came up with that one. Using nothing but the steel of recycled cars, we made 23 million during the war. He smiles with pride. And they're still making them today.